We're taking just a, a small break from our series in Acts for the, the sake of Holy Week. And so I'd ask you now to turn to uh, the Gospel of John and chapter 2. We will pick up John's account of the life of Jesus in verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13, reading through verse 22. This is the word of God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. May God add his blessing on the reading and now the preaching of his word as we consider today a well-known passage from the life of Jesus where he drives out uh, the, the sellers and the money changers from the temple, admittedly, it is, it's a, a bit of a, a jarring scene. Where is Jesus, meek and mild, that we're used to singing about? Many people do love, though, to refer to this passage as a means of justifying any and all sorts of righteous anger. Well, you know, Jesus, he overturned the tables. Uh, perhaps sometimes that's warranted. I'm sure many times it isn't. We, we are told very clearly in, in John's gospel, though, why Jesus behaved this way at this particular time. It's in verse 17. It's because zeal for his father's house had consumed him. It's an all-consuming zeal that spurs on these actions. And what we're learning in this passage is that he is zealous Not just for the things of God, but as we're going to come to see, in particular, for the reconciliation of God and man together. And he is so zealous for this, so passionate about this, that he is willing to die to ensure that it happens. Truly, the the impassioned zeal that we see from Jesus here sets up for us all of Passion Week in our understanding of it. Why Jesus goes to the cross. Why he dies. Why he's raised again. It's all embedded for us right here. Now, I want to say a brief word 
on the chronology of this scene, and I'll admit that usually when pastors say they have a brief word, it's not really brief. So I want to say a word about the chronology of this scene. We'll see how long it takes. But this is an episode that is recounted in every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's significant because there are only a handful of events. I don't have the number written down, but it's, I think, less than a dozen. A handful of events that... Um, are recorded in all four Gospels. So when something shows up four times in your Bible, it's pretty important. This is one of those important scenes. But unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John actually records the scene at the very, close to the very beginning of his Gospel in chapter 2, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place it um, near the end of their accounts as Jesus enters Jerusalem to celebrate Passover the week of his death on this day that we call Palm Sunday. That's where they put it. It's not where John places it for us. He puts it, he fronts it at, at the start of his book. Why is that the case? Well, really, there are only two options for why this would be. The first option is that something like this scene happened on more than one occasion. That is to say that in entering uh, the holy city to celebrate Passover, Uh, Jesus goes to the temple and he sees people perverting, abusing God's worship. And he creates a whip of cords and he turns over the tables and he drives the people um, out of the temple. That 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 happened on at least two occasions, if not more. There's no way to disprove that. It is possible that Jesus, in righteous indignation, did that on more than one occasion. There's a second possibility, though, and it is the one that that I prefer, and that is this, that the event only happened one time. It only took place once, but the writers of the gospel placed it where they do in their narratives, not for chronological reasons, but for theological reasons. Not for chronological reasons, but for theological reasons. That is, that there's something about where we read of this story Uh, about the purification of the temple that is instructive for how we understand the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So either John placed it early or the synoptic gospels, they placed it late. And since John is the odd man out here, it makes more sense that he's the one who diverted from the normal chronological narrative and, and went with the theological interpretation. If that's the case, that means that the three other writers are primarily giving us the account as it happened, whereas John is showing us why it happened or why it's important. Why it's important that it happened. And I think embedded in this story is proof that that is the case. What, what does John write at the conclusion in verse 22? In verse 22, he writes, After the resurrection, when therefore he was raised from the dead, then... His disciples remembered that he had said this, what what took place in our passage today, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it wasn't until the resurrection took place that that everything about the, the purification of the temple clicked for them. And likewise, I think we can read verse 17 in the same way. His disciples remembered that it was written... Zeal for your house will consume me. I believe that that's meant to say also after the resurrection, they remembered this. They look back now and they see that all that Jesus believed, all that he taught, all that he said, all that he did, all that he was about was was coming into crystal clarity. Now they remember. Now they get it. Now they believe. 
So I think John places this scene right at the front of his gospel so that our eyes would not be so dull or our, 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 our so foggy and our, our hearts not so dull as the disciples, that we would actually get it from the beginning. That we would know as we begin to read this, this amazing story of the greatest man who ever lived, uh, God come in human flesh to, to save his people from their sins, that, that we would get it's all leading to the cross and to the empty tomb. That you can't understand the life of Jesus apart from what takes place in what we call Holy Week. It, it won't make sense. And the disciples, they didn't get it till after the fact, but we don't need to be like the disciples. We're told now, right, right at the start of John chapter 2. This is how we need to interpret the life and ministry of Jesus. So, whenever this event took place, whether it was once or twice, whether it was at the beginning or the end of Jesus' ministry, I do believe that John's burden is that we see that Christ's ministry is marked by a zeal for the things of God, and it is a zeal that will lead him to death and back again. So when we read this scene, uh, it has a trajectory, a momentum, a thrust towards Calvary. That's what we need to understand. We, we need to recognize where, where Jesus is headed if we want to understand John chapter 2. It's a, as I mentioned, a familiar text. Christ comes into the temple and he sees these abuses and he is, is filled with this righteous anger. Um, in, in 2008, uh, there was a 16-year-old uh, named Corey Delaney who decided to throw a party in his parents' um, a Melbourne home while they were out of town, kind of classic story of teens doing not smart things when they have the opportunity to uh, be home alone. Uh, this, though, was unlike a, um, a normal teenager getting into trouble. Uh, he posted that he was going to have a party on his MySpace. Again, this is 2008. 500 people arrived, they turned the home upside down, and a pandemi- uh, pandemonium ensued in the town. And so the police were called, they had to get choppers and a dog squad to quell the mayhem. Now, imagine the parents, right? They're called home from vacation on the other side of the continent. Uh, they come home not just to a, a, a house that's been uh, destroyed, but a neighborhood that's been destroyed. Uh, it, it really is hard to imagine. Uh, the, the rage that probably would have um, overcome these parents. In some way, this helps us get into the mindset of Christ. He says that this is his father's house, but we know that he's from the father. He's one with the father, so it's also his house. He's come into his home, and he's seen that it's been destroyed, in a sense. You know, we, we think Jesus is the one who upturned the tables, but he's not the one who upturned the house. He got there, and it was already turned over. It had been transformed, literally, from a house of prayer into a house of trade. That's how he finds it. Now, as the disciples enter the, the temple complex, um, in verse 14, he's, he's going in, Jesus is going in, and he's with his 
uh, disciples, any worshiper who would have entered the temple complex, the first place they would have entered is what is known as the outer court or the court of the Gentiles, uh, the largest part of the temple structure, but it was as far as non-Jews were allowed to go. This is where they could do their worshiping while the, the real worshipers got to go in uh, even further. But rather than finding Gentiles worshiping, what does Jesus find? He finds Jews selling. They're selling animals to be sacrificed. There's also um, this, uh, these money changers there. Now, it's a smart operation if you think about it. Smart business strategy. Selling animals in the temple. It's just like the guy who knows that if he shows up outside a baseball stadium on a really hot summer day uh, with a cooler of water, you, you will spend $5 for that bottle of water while you wait to get into the stadium. That's kind of what's happening here. They know people need sheep. They need pigeons, maybe, if they can't afford sheep. Josephus, uh, the historian, wrote that in 66 AD, over a quarter million lambs were, were brought through Jerusalem. So that that's kind of gives you an idea uh, of what takes place around Passover. Beyond selling the animals, though, there were also these money changers. They're, they're people who were taking currency from all different parts of, of the world and converting it to the shekel. Because in Exodus chapter 30, it says that's what the temple tax, that's the currency it needs to be in. So it's important to recognize that all of these things that were happening were necessary for the proper worship of God. People needed to have sacrifices. They needed to have animals. It was important that the money brought into the temple treasury was in uh, accordance with the instructions of the Torah. So... What is the problem? Why does Jesus react the way he does? Is he just having a bad day? Did he just wake up on the wrong side of the bed? No. It's not that what they were doing uh, is wrong. It's where they were doing it that was wrong. These were events that were necessary for worship, but they should never have taken place during worship or inside the house of worship. And so that's what we find here. And that's why Jesus reacts the way that he does. And after this event in the temple... We're told that eventually, at some point or another, the disciples remember the words of Psalm 69, verse 17. We're told that in our text. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That is to say that, that they look back on this event and they recognize that Jesus was not acting out. He was actually fulfilling scripture. Well, we've read about this in our Bibles. Psalm 69 is, is a psalm of lament. It's written by David and it's about, he's lamenting the fact that the world around him hates him, derides him. Even his friends and his families do not support him because of this reason. Because he has prioritized God above everything else. Because I care about you more than anything else, God, everybody hates me. And that's hard. That's tough. We perhaps know that to some degree or another. What it's like to be ridiculed, mocked, not supported, not encouraged by people who don't get what this whole Christianity business is about. That's Psalm 69. I've been consumed with, with a zeal, a passion for your house. And yet my friends and my family, they don't get it. They hate me. Now, perhaps at first they were startled by Jesus' display in the temple. But eventually they recognized that Jesus was living up to the scriptures. Because how many times had they seen the abuses of corporate worship in the court of the Gentiles and not batted an eye? And yet one comes who cares about these things, not just as much as David, who saw that the temple would be constructed, but even more than David. This is great David's greater son. This is the fulfillment of all that David represented to the people. Then comes Jesus, and he is so filled 
with a passion for the right worship of God, that he can't, uh, he can't let such idolatry go by unaddressed. Again, the disciples, maybe they saw this every year and never said anything. But Jesus has to speak out. He has to act. Because he is the one so filled with a commitment and a love for his Father that his every breath is breathed in submission to his Father. And that's important to remember. It's perhaps easy for us to get indignant at the sins of others, at the errors of other churches, the evil of the world. But it's another thing, though, to ensure that our lives actually measure up to the standard to which we hold everybody else to. But this is not a speck log situation with Jesus and the Pharisees. He was without blemish. He was without fault. He was without error. They professed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He actually did. And that's why he acts the way he does. That's part of the answer to the question that the Jews ask, the Pharisees ask in verse 18. They say, look there with me, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're asking, what proof do you have that you're allowed to act in this manner? That you're allowed to exercise such authority? What proof do you have that you're actually allowed to purify the temple? And the answer is that Jesus is the pure temple. That's where he gets his authority. He is the perfect one. The one from the Father. The one who is actually one with the Father. The one who is for his Father in every way imaginable. Although all of God's image bearers are called to glorify him, only Christ is consumed entirely with such God-glorifying zeal To the point where there was absolutely no spot or stain within him. And that will be proven when he's raised from the dead. Do you want to know what authority I have to do the things I just did? To say that that God's worship needs to be done in this way. That we need to live in God's house in this way. We need to act in this manner. Do you want to know where I get the authority? It's because I'm sinless. I'm perfect. I'm one with God. And if you don't believe me... Wait until Easter Sunday. That's what Jesus says. He says to prove to them that he has authority to do these things. He says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The comment that he makes about rebuilding the temple, it's a veiled reference to the resurrection. Why is Jesus raised? Because death is for sinners, and he had no sin. That's the simple answer. Why is he raised from the dead? Because death has no claim on him. There's no sin, no fault, no impurity found within him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ secures our justification, but it also validates or vindicates his own justification. It's the proof that he truly is the righteous one, the perfect one, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one able to exercise the kind of authority that we see in John 2. But what's so amazing and what should melt our hearts in in humble thankfulness is the fact that even though he was and is 
the only perfectly righteous one to ever live, the only one to ever completely and, and entirely always obey the Father and please the Father, the one who, who lived for eternity in unbroken fellowship with the Godhead, the one who cared for and even represented what the temple was all about, dwelling with God, the one, the only one who upon, upon whom death had no claim, even so, this one, we are told here, lives to die. The only person in all of human history who did not need to die chooses to. Don't miss this fact. The death of Christ was not some horrible accident. It wasn't Jesus succumbing to the wiles of a mob that had outsmarted him. This was his plan. He comes to Jerusalem on this week knowing how it will end. Yes, he says, destroy this temple because, indeed, it would be the Pharisees that would call for his death. But make no mistake, they could never destroy what he didn't first deliver over to them. We're told that in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It's a zeal for life with God that leads to death. Isn't that a thing? He's zealous for life with God. Zealous for the house of God and more than that for what it represented. And that you know what the house of God represented, what the temple was all about. The temple was a major step in getting humanity back to where we were in the garden. Where God walked with Adam and Eve. Where he dwelt with Adam and Eve. Where he lived with his, with his creation in perfect harmony. And there's the tabernacle, and then the temple, all getting us back to that, that harmonious fellowship, reconciliation between God and man. That's what Jesus is zealous about. I, I'm, I'm zealous that God would dwell with man. He's zealous for life, and it leads him to his own death. That's what it would take for God to establish his dwelling place with man. Uh, not another temple, uh, not one that took 46 years to build, not one that would take 460 years to build, and not something that's bigger or better, not a new religious system. What man needs to live with God is a cleansed, redeemed, restored heart. And that's what Jesus gives through his death and resurrection. Now, of course, interestingly, that's what the sacrificial activities of the temple were supposed to represent. Right? They would sacrifice these lambs as a means of, of cleansing their souls, uh, representing that cleansing, saying, look, now we can be reconciled to God, but we know that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And so Jesus is saying here, ironically, you destroy this temple, my body, and you will be offering the single sacrifice that once for all takes away all human sin. And then you know what? You can destroy this other temple too because you won't need it. That's not all that Jesus says. He doesn't just say destroy this temple. He also says that he'll raise it up again. Just as in John 10, he says, nobody takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. He also says, and I have authority to take it back up. Now here he says, I will raise it up. It's a statement that's completely mind-boggling to those who heard it at that time, disciples and Pharisees alike. But John says it doesn't need to confuse you and me. Because what the disciples didn't get until after Easter Sunday, we know now that this is about the resurrection. Verse 20. 
Uh, verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. It wasn't until Jesus stepped out of the tomb that they had their aha moment. Oh, we get it now. They finally understood what he had meant with that cryptic line. And beyond that, they understood what he had meant with his entire life and ministry. As I said earlier, this is why I believe John places it at the beginning, so that we get it too, so that we don't miss it. So that you can leave today, having read John 2, knowing, you know, the entire life and ministry of Jesus was all about his death. Isn't that amazing? It's not a flaw in the plan. It was the plan. That he would die, and that he would be raised again. That his life was all about reconciling God and man. This is what he's zealous for. Zeal for my father's house. Zeal for what this house represents has consumed him. What is this zeal? We've been talking about it a lot. Maybe we shouldn't have waited till the very end to give a definition for it. But, but what does that mean exactly? In, in the Hebrew, the word... Uh, translated zeal in Psalm 69 is actually the word that would be used of, of um, jealousy uh, for, let's say, a husband, for his wife. That feeling of, I don't want to see anybody else with her. Um, a zeal that's inspired by love. A passion. Uh, um, a claim on somebody. You're mine. I don't want anybody else to have you. Zealous for that. That's the idea in Psalm 69. And we see that illustrated for us in one other place that I want to draw your attention to as we close. Isaiah 37. Please turn there with me in your scriptures. Isaiah 37. We're going to look at verse 32. So this idea of zeal, it's, it's, it's God's love for his people, and it's so great that he, he won't bear the thought of letting them be with anybody else besides him. That's how much he loves you and me. That's how much he loves his people. And that's what he tells um, Hezekiah in Isaiah 37. What we've come to is this place in Israel's history where uh, the Assyrians are coming. They're going to attack through the wicked king Sennacherib, and, and Hezekiah, is, he's just melted in fear, and he cries out to God that God would save him. And this is God's answer, that indeed he would save his people. Sennacherib doesn't get the last word. The Assyrians won't win. Why? Because God loves his people, and he can't bear the thought of them being with anybody else, even if they deserve it. And so this is what he tells Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. In verse 32, he's telling him, no, it's not the end. Actually, he says, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. How? Why? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Same word as in Psalm 69, quoted in John 2. Why is it that Israel's not destroyed? Why is it that out of Jerusalem, a besieged city, there comes a band of survivors? Because God has a love for his people that nothing can overcome. He will not let them be with anybody else except him. 
He's zealous for them. He's zealous for you and me. And he has such a zeal that he sends his son to Jerusalem, to the holy mount. But for Jesus, it's not a mount of survival. It's a place of death. If the disciples thought that Jesus was overcome with zeal in the temple, then just wait until Good Friday, where he is consumed with the zeal of God to the point of death. God is so zealous that we would dwell in his house forevermore that he dies to make it happen. What we see in John 2 and in the life of Christ is a zeal, a love for life, life between God and man that would cause God to become man and to taste death for us. And the question today is, do you believe it? You notice that's the response of the disciples. That's what we're told about them. They remembered and then they believed. Verse 22. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you believe this? Remembrance is important. That's why we we do this each year. That's why we celebrate Holy Week. We, We think on the death of Christ. We think on the cross. We think on the resurrection. We remember. But remembrance is not enough. We must have belief today. We must embrace it. We must know that it's for us, that he did this for me. So today, do you, seal, do you see the zeal of Jesus for his Father's house is actually a zeal for your salvation? For your salvation. A desire that you and I would be at peace with God, one with God, at home with God. That's what he's zealous about. That's, that's what we should think of when we read John 2 and in the other gospel accounts and we might think, wow, he's, he's kind of really overreacting here. Sometimes other people's zeal does that to us, right? We think, wow, they're kind of obsessed with this. They're kind of crazy about this, uh, whatever it is. Uh, People can be so intense about certain subjects or topics, it takes the wind right out of us before we can even engage with them about it. Sometimes people want us to get just as riled up as they are about politics or the country or church and theology, whatever it is. And if you're like me, maybe at times you respond, well, you know, that's great for you. I'm I'm glad you're excited about it. I'm glad you want to debate that with somebody else. Uh, That's not a hill I'm going to die on. I have found in pastoral ministry so many hills I'm not willing to die on. But today, aren't you so grateful that when it came to dwelling in God's house forevermore, Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to get all worked up about it. Uh, That's not really my thing. That's not a hill I'm going to die on. Far from it. In five days, it was a hill that he would die on to bring you into the fellowship of God forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the ministry, the mission 
of your Son, who came into this world to wear our human frame and to taste death, which he alone did not deserve. That he would enter the holy city as one who should be hailed the king of kings and enthroned in glory forevermore. But he came, yes, in majesty, but to die. Thank you that he was so filled with a love, a passion, a zeal for you and for your people that even the cruel cross could not deter him from securing our salvation. So we praise you and we thank you in his name. Amen.